Thank you. Finding Life, how are we? Doing good? All right, all right. I, uh, it's an honor to be here again with you this week, and I'm really excited about this week. Last week was fun. I had a lot of fun with you guys, and I learned something about you guys. You guys, Finding Life has a strong Twitter game. Twitter game is strong. You guys were lighting up Twitter, and I got called out on Twitter last week uh, by more than one person, uh, because last week I got kind of like to the end of my time allotment, and I just wrapped it up real quick. And I got called out and said, don't you ever do that again. Just go. <laughs> so just so you know, like, I'm taking your advice this morning. Like, we're just going to go and see where we go. All right? So, so last week, we talked a little bit about context. We looked at a verse, kind of a tough verse, a verse that people love, non-Christians and Christians alike, and asked the question, did Jesus really mean what it seems like he means when you take that little verse you know, out of context? And, and one of the things I said last week is, is you know, Jesus, he, he never had a Twitter account uh, and neither did any of the other authors of Scripture. So, so when we read something in the Scriptures, nothing is like a standalone statement in 140 characters or less. Right? It's always attached to something. And the context, so you've got to kind of zoom out a little bit, because if you just take a verse out of context, uh, and, and then you look at the context, that actually can really affect the meaning in a pretty profound way. So like if I gave you the statement, I'll just give you a statement. You tell me whether there's a positive or negative connotation with this statement. Right? The statement is, Larry still lives at home with his parents. Does that elicit like a positive or a negative response? Right, pretty negative, right? Because we're Americans, and in this country at least, like eventually a boy grows up and becomes a man, he maybe goes to school or gets a job, and he moves out, you know? And so that, there's a negative connotation. But if we zoom out a little bit, and I tell you the next statement, uh, which is Larry is only nine years old, right? It changes the meaning like entirely. So all of you who judged Larry, shame on you. He's nine. <laughs> Of course he lives at home, right? And so I, I kind of want to get us like thinking this direction a little bit as we approach our text this morning, um, because when you're looking at a passage, um, you know, some passages do work as a standalone verse, you know, and, and you read the verse and it represents a timeless truth that is true like across cultures and times. Uh, but sometimes you read a verse and, and it strikes us as strange, um, and it's because it's cultural. There's a cultural element there. And we, and we almost intrinsically know this, but I want you thinking like, through the categories. So, so I'm going to give you just a few verses. And after every verse, I'm just going to ask you, is this a timeless, represent a timeless truth? Is it timeless or is it cultural? All right, so, so first one, Matthew 22, 39, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that timeless or cultural? Timeless, very good. Uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Cultural or timeless? Timeless. Very good. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. <laughs> Timeless. I'm going to guess he's single, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's hope, you know, let's hope that there's certain contexts where it's okay for a man to touch a woman. I have three kids. Let's hope I've not been living in sin this entire time. Uh, okay, so let's, a couple more. Uh, Micah 6 8. Uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Timeless or cultural? Timeless. Habakkuk 2 16. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. Not so sure. Wow, finding life. I had no idea. I'll give you two more, two more. Uh, Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Timeless or cultural? Timeless, absolutely. Hosea 1.2, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. All right, you, you get the point. All right? <laughs> you get the point, right? Uh, there's, you've got to pay attention to, to, to context. 
right? If you just take a verse out of its context, you just don't want to do that with any verse and make it your life verse, you know? Uh, you, you don't want to tattoo it on your body, you know, drink and let your nakedness be exposed. Probably should not be etched anywhere, you know, on here, right? So context matters. Uh, it matters hugely. And, and this morning, we're going to look at a passage that's a really hard passage. And if I'm really honest with you, this passage has been used. It has wreaked havoc uh, on churches over the years. And, and we're wading into sensitive waters. And, and I feel like I can do that because I'm a guest. And if you feel like I'm a heretic, I'm going to be gone next week. So you can thank God for that. But if you want to email me angry emails, go ahead. Right, my email address is travis at findinglifechurch.com. <laughs> and uh, I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. But we're going to talk about uh, this morning, women in leadership, uh, the role in gender in this thing that we call the church, uh, which, just so you know, I'll just say this on the front end, uh, is a pretty hot-button issue. And within the, the community of faith, within the church, there's a lot of different convictions and beliefs around this. And so, just to put on the front end, this is a secondary theological issue, and I have pastor friends who I love dearly, and we land in very different places on this one. And so it's one of those things that we can't let divide us, but it's so important because every one of us in every church has to land somewhere um, on this. And so if it's all right with you, we're just going to lean in. So, so there was a, a book written a couple decades ago called uh, Children's Letters to God. And it's these kids' letters, their prayers to God. And in it, one child writes this. He says, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair, right? And that's kind of the question behind the question that we're asking this morning. And, and as we open up, crack open the scriptures, I think before we do, it's, it's, it's worthwhile for us to kind of zoom out a little bit and even just reflect a little bit on our own context. Because all of us have been swimming in culture from the moment we were born. We're a part of a story, a larger story, the United States, and and. It would, not be, it would be silly of us to think that, that our story and our culture and what's going on in the world doesn't have any effect on some of the assumptions that we have, the beliefs that we have, um, and, and the ways that we interpret scriptures like we're going to look at this morning. And so I just want to share culturally just some things with you that maybe you do or, or don't know. Uh, did you know uh, that until 1920, women were not allowed to vote in the United States uh, because of the general belief that they was that they lacked the sufficient intelligence and maturity to have a say in who governed them. Until 19th, the 19th century, married women in many states by law, they couldn't own property. Uh, until the 20th century, men were allowed by law in several states to use physical violence uh, to chastise their wives. That was normal. That was legal, protected by the state. Uh, to this day, as probably many of you know, there's countries where uh, baby boys are valued much more than baby girls. And in fact, in some of those countries, they will perform ultrasounds uh, to discover the sex of the child and either to abort that child, or if they are born, if it's a girl, uh, they will poison that little girl or throw her into the river. This is normal. This is the world in which we live. There are some Islamic countries to this day where rape victims are charged and imprisoned for adultery. That's a thing. Um, in fact, some of you just might have seen a few weeks ago in your Facebook news feed uh, in Pakistan, a gal by the name of uh, Kwandil Balok. She was a, a model, an actress, and a feminine activist in Pakistan, and she was strangled to death by her brother, uh, who proudly turned himself into the authorities and said he did it in part so the world would know that women were born to stay at home. 
All right, so this is, this is the world, uh, at least in which we live, and where our experience has been birthed out of. And I think we would be silly to think, uh, to think that this is not a, doesn't affect things, that it hasn't made its way, at least in part, into the church, into the way that we govern ourselves, into the way that we, that we make decisions, and the way that we interpret passages like we're going to look at today. And the verse that we're going to look at um, is one that has caused, as I said, a, a lot of havoc. And, and let's, let's look at that now. That's 1 Timothy 2.12. And this is what we read. This is what it says. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. I want to thank you for coming this morning. Uh, let's close in prayer. <laughs> it's a tough verse. It's a tough verse. Uh, for, for years and years, over the last couple hundred, few hundred years, uh, this verse has been used in churches uh, to mean all different kinds of things um, and to keep women from participating and doing all kinds of things in churches. So some have taken it to mean that a woman can never exercise any kind of leadership in the church over a man. Uh, in some places, it's been taken to mean that a woman can never exercise any kind of teaching or preaching in the direction of a man. So it's like children's ministry, okay. Women's ministry, okay. But there's a man around she needs to surrender the microphone and be quiet because Paul wrote it, right? Uh, in many churches and traditions, it's been taken to mean that women cannot serve on the board. Uh, in others, it's been taken to mean that women can't vote on church matters. They can't usher. They can't lead small groups. They can't baptize people, right? So this is a, this is a big one. And we're tasked with asking the question, right, is, is this a timeless truth? Right? Or is there something cultural going on? Was this just a cultural thing for a certain time and a certain place? Is, is what God meant by allowing this verse to be in the canon right, something to be universally applied across all time and space? So, as we seek to ask that question, one of the things that we always have to do, and this is just like an interpretive note, is whenever we're reading a passage of Scripture, right, we always have to ask and keep our eye on the larger story that God is telling in the world, right? Every time you every time you read a verse, right? Every verse is written in a certain local context to a certain people at a certain time, and it's a snapshot, right? It's a snapshot of what God is doing in that place, a snapshot of something that is that has been commanded or taught or recorded at this time. And what we have to constantly be aware of and be paying attention to is where those snapshots are going, right? It, it's a dot. Right, and so it's a dot, and as we follow it, right, we're paying attention to how those dots all connect. And over time, what we get is we get this beautiful, incredible picture, this tapestry, this canvas of the character of God, what he's doing in the world, right, and what his desire is. But what we can never, never, never do, what we have to be very careful not to do, is to hone in, which, man, in evangelicalism, we love this. We'll do whole sermons with, like, on a word, a Greek word, you know, uh, and, and, lose, and, and lose, like, the, the, the capture of what's actually going on. So my favorite seminary professor uh, that I ever had, his name was uh, Torsten Moritz. And he was German, and he had this thick German accent, and he always talked about the funnel. He said, you know, as we read the Bible, we have this overarching narrative of what God has done, what he's currently doing, what he's going to do in the future. You have this arc of story that God is telling in the world. And anytime you hone in on a passage, right, you come into the bottom of this funnel. And he always said, beware of the bottom of the funnel. He said, it will crush you. And he said that all the time. Be very careful, it will crush you. And what he's saying is that if, you, if we hone in, we can actually pull that out of context and miss, actually contradict the very character of God, the heart of God, and what he's actually doing uh, in human history. So 
we have to ask, in every passage that we look at, in that passage, right, there's a timeless truth. And that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for that timeless truth. But that truth is always wrapped in cultural packaging, always, right? And so, for example, as we look at that arch, right, one of the things that we know when God comes to us in the person of Jesus is he comes to us as a missionary, right? And so even as we're reading the Gospels, we find that there's certain things in culture that Jesus, is, as a missionary, is working from within to transform, but that he tolerates for some time, right? He doesn't just, so a missionary doesn't show up on the scene and just blow everything up. And Jesus didn't do that either, right? Instead, what a missionary does is it moves into the neighborhood, right? And it starts to, it embeds, a missionary embeds themselves in that culture. They learn the language, right? They, and they begin to operate from within that culture to transform it, to redeem it, to take it to reflect, right, what is more consistent with God's kingdom and God's ideal. And we find this in the person of Jesus. He does this all the time. He is a missionary to us. He doesn't blow up culture. He doesn't change the world like that. Instead, he embeds himself. And what ends up happening, right, is, <clears throat> is that, you know, he, he, God basically gives us principles, right? It, he embeds principles in that culture that, if lived out, begin to change and redeem and restore, right? So the question for us, as we look at 1 Timothy 2, is, is this a timeless teaching, right? Or, uh, you know, is it, is, it, is it in line with, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, which is timeless? You know, or that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. You know, uh, is it that kind of timeless? Or is it something that's cultural that was allowed for a time? And so I want to give you an example of this just to kind of get your mind going in that direction. Right, a really good example of this is slavery. Right, one of the sticky points about slavery and the Bible is you, you, we don't find a verse where God says, uh, slavery is an abomination in my sight, therefore thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not own slaves. It's not in there. And in fact, there are verses that actually speak to slaves and slave owners. Uh, verses like this. Uh, 1 Peter 2.18 says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, uh, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Right? And so 150 years ago in the South, there were slave owners who are Christians who would use this verse to argue, well, clearly the Bible is pro-slavery. Right? It says, Slaves, obey your masters. Clearly, it's right there, right? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me, right? It's pro-slavery, right? So there was, there's a rift there. And fortunately, by God's grace, there were other Christians who said, hey, let's not ignore that that's in there, but let's actually read and study uh, both the context there and the entire story of God and ask, is this consistent with God's ideal for creation, for where things are actually moving? And, and, and as a result, the beautiful thing is, as it, re as it relates to like the ab abolition of slavery, uh, that was overwhelmingly led by Christians. Um, and the reason was not because they were rejecting the Bible, but because they were embracing the Bible. Right? They continued to learn and to study and not just pluck out a verse like this and a verse like that and build a whole theological position on it. Right? So they, they leaned in and they asked, first of all, what is the cultural context in which a verse like that is being used? Right? And, and on the front end, I'll just say this. Like, for example, um, for one, slavery in the Bible is not the same as the slavery that we had for 400 years in the United States. Right? It was much more like an indentured servant, and most of the time, a slavery could actually work their way to freedom and become free. Right? So it was, a, it was a different time and a different place. And, and just as importantly, as it relates to this missionary work that we're all called to, that we see in Jesus, uh, <clears throat> slavery had been a part of the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. So when Paul is writing these words, or Peter is writing these words over here, Right, they're writing within a culture where slavery has existed. 
right? And so we know, so this like begins to give us extra layers and we start to think, okay, maybe it makes a little more sense why he is writing at this time and saying, all right, you're a slave, right? You have a master and now you've committed your life to Jesus. And this is what it looks like to honor God right where you are right now, right? And why they would begin to, why they would teach slave owners and saying, hey, all right, you, you own slaves, but you're now a part of Jesus' church. You've been baptized. You're beginning to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to actually honor God right where you are. But they also looked at the whole counsel of God. And you begin to look at the whole counsel of God, and you begin to actually live out what Jesus commanded, and the truth is there's absolutely no way you could own slaves. There's, there's no way, right? Teachings like submit yourself to one another, right? And so they would begin to teach, look, you're a slave owner. You cannot view them as property anymore, or even an indentured servant. In fact, that's your brother. That's your sister in Christ, and you now need to submit yourself to them. And so the movement of Scripture is not, it's not into slavery. It's towards freedom, right? So you watch the snapshots of what God is doing, right? In the kingdom of God, Jesus said, look, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off very small. Right? One act of kindness at a time, one life at a time, one community of faith at a time, and then it grows from within a culture and begins to redeem and transform that culture. Right? And so you begin to read passages like this through the lens of slavery, and you ask, okay, how in the world does slavery continue to exist? When you read this, like Paul, uh, Galatians 3, uh, Paul writes this. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So therefore, now, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? And this is why, right? this is why the abolition movement was, was led by Christians, overwhelmingly. People like William Wilberforce uh, over in England, Jonathan Blanchard in the Chicago area, and they did it. Now, they did it because of their faith and because of what they found in the scriptures. And unfortunately, it took us centuries for us to figure this out and get it in the United States. But by God's grace, by God's grace, we did. Right? So we find, so I say all that simply to say that we find these tension points as we read the scriptures, where the wisdom of the scriptures meets the imperfect realities of the world, and it seems that God is patient in bringing about the kingdom and working to transform the world from within culture. And when you're working as a missionary like that, there are always seasons in certain elements of that culture that do not reflect God's ideals. But God is moving us in a way to transform it, to bring it in line with his ideals. So, all that to say as we look at the role of women in the church, right, we have to ask this question. We have to ask the cultural question. First of all, were there things going on at this time when Paul writes these words that would help explain why he would command women to be in this role and for men to respond like that? And secondly, to ask, is it consistent with what we find throughout the Bible? And when we find on an issue that there's consistent teaching, it's consistent throughout the Bible, it's a really good indication that what we're, what we're dealing with is a timeless truth. But if we read something, what we find is contradiction, right? Where, where it's applied over here this way, and then here it's applied a little bit different over here, and then over here it's applied a different way, well then very likely in that kind of a case we're dealing with something that's cultural, right? Something that can be applied in different ways in different cultures. So for example, with like drinking, like, I don't know what your church background is, but I grew up in a small rural Minnesota town, less than 10,000 people, and it was a staunch Baptist church. And there are two things that we are completely against, uh, drinking and dancing. Like, we're deathly afraid of those two things. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but you do know why Baptists are so against premarital sex. It might lead to dancing, right? And so that was like the culture that I grew up in. 
right? And so around the drinking issue, they would, we would teach like passages like this, right, all the time. These were like our go-to mottos. Uh, Proverbs 23. Uh, Do not even look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. All right, that's a pretty good one, you know? And there's other ones that says, hey, don't drink. It leads to debauchery and all these other sins. And that's what we were told all the time. Well, it really threw me for a loop, like, years later when I started to read this thing for myself. And I came across passages like this, like Psalm 104.15, which essentially says, give thanks to the Lord who gives us wine to make our hearts happy. It's like, what? You know, like, that's in there, you know? Or like uh, 1 Timothy 5.23, uh, Paul says this. He says, stop drinking only water. And use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Since you're not feeling well, I get it. Hey, you don't need to just be drinking water. Just, you know, just a little bit, you know? <laughs> and then Jesus, of course, his inaugural miracle of making a boatload of wine for a Galilean shindig. All that to say, right, it, it leads us to believe, like, okay, there, what we do know is there's a timeless truth in there. And the timeless truth that we find consistent throughout scriptures is don't drink until you can't spell anymore. You know what I mean? Like, that drunkenness is something that, that we, just, we just don't do, you know? Um, that, and, and there's probably circumstances where staying away from alcohol is just a really good idea, but where we find the, di- the variance and the dissonance, it makes us, also leads us to believe that there's probably scenarios where drinking in moderation is something that is fine, right? Drinking a beer, probably fine, unless it's light beer, Michelob Ultra, Bud Light, definitely a sin, but good beer in moderation, um, apparently okay. So anyway, all I have to say, uh, Sorry, I'm, you, Travis at FindingLifeChurch.com. Um, <laughs> so the question with 1 Timothy 2.12, with this prohibition about women having authority over men and them needing to be quiet, we need to ask, right, is this a timeless teaching or is it a cultural condition? It's something that we find variants of. So let's, let's, speak to the, let's look at the culture first. All right, what was the culture uh, surrounding what was going on? It's really, really intriguing and it sheds a lot of light on this passage. Right, Paul is writing Timothy in Ephesus, and Ephesus is a very hard place, as we find, to lead a church well. Uh, Ephesus was uh, the, the largest city in Asia Minor at the time. A lot of scholars uh, believe it was about 100,000 people. Um, it was situated on a very busy port and a very major intersection between two highways leading into the interior of Asia Minor. And so it was the Greek center for commerce and communication in the region. You had tons of people coming through, tons of influences and beliefs, and what we find is, is uh, the Ephesians had a reputation as a very zealous religious people. Not for the God of the Bible, not for Jesus, uh, but for, the, for Artemis, the temple of Diana, uh, which was the goddess of infertility. And in fact, they had this amazing temple that they had built in the city that was uh, bigger than a football field. It was covered in gold and silver. Uh, at one point, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Right, and people would come from all over the place to come and take part in this temple. And one of the main practices was ritualistic prostitution uh, with a priestess. Uh, they would come into the city, they would lodge there, they would eat there. There were many local craftsmen uh, that would construct things like small idols of Artemis that people would buy and take home with them. And so like everything about uh, the, the, the commerce of Ephesus was based, a lot of it, on this temple of Diana. And this, this made it incredibly difficult to lead a church well. In fact, we find Paul uh, runs into this a number of times, and there's one point where Paul is, and the disciples are trying to share about Jesus uh, in Ephesus, and the people get really ticked at them because people are coming to Christ and being baptized, and they're leaving this pagan religion, and they're joining the church, and the craftsmen are worried. 
It's like people are not going to be coming. They're not going to be bringing money into the temple. They're not going to be lodging and eating here to go there. They're not going to be buying these crafts, these, these sculptures that are created here. And it makes this huge riot. And the disciples try to settle them down and say, hey, let's talk about this rationally. And everybody starts chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they actually get louder and louder. They go on for two hours straight chanting this is what we're told in the scriptures. So this is the climate, right? And so you have got, these are not like Scandinavian people. They are nothing like us, Lincoln, Omaha people, Nebraska people. They're kind of conservative, laid back, you know, whatever. They are passionate, zealous, religious people, right? And this is the context uh, in which uh, he's doing ministry. And there's something very, very interesting about this religion as it relates to our conversation this morning. And that is that the Temple of Diana was led almost exclusively by women, right? Women were the authority figures. They conducted the worship. They did all the teaching. They're the ones that participated in the temple prostitution. They led the liturgy. They were the authority. In fact, men had little to no role. If they had any role, it was a subservient role way beneath women. And what we know from the scriptures is that a lot of people are coming to Christ, including some of these priestesses. They're leaving the whole pagan religion altogether, and now they're a part of the church. And it's, this, it's in this context that Paul is writing these these words, right? And so I just, just, let's just think about this for a moment then. In the broader culture, what was going on with the Temple of Artemis, totally countercultural. In the broader culture, women, uh, most of them could not work outside of the home. Generally, they were, not, they were not educated. They didn't have the opportunity for that. They, weren't, they didn't have independent, strong women careers kind of a thing. Um, they had very few opportunities, right? In fact, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was studying this recently, and in this particular time in the ancient world, uh, for every 10 men that you might find who are educated, you'd be lucky if you found one woman, right? And so as far as educational opportunities go, women were behind the eight ball. They had very few opportunities. They weren't educated, which means, by the way, they weren't educated in the God of the Bible, right? They didn't know the gospel. They didn't have the opportunity to become rabbis. They didn't have the opportunity even to become disciples of rabbis, right? They didn't have the opportunity to be educated except for with one exception, and that is in the Temple of Artemis. Right, over there, they were the authorities. And some of these women, we know now, are becoming a part of the church. And, and it's in this moment that Paul writes these words that I do not permit a woman to teach a man. And what we do know, at the very least, is that there's no possible way that any woman that was a part of the church would have had the training uh, that the apostles, many of the apostles did. Right? They didn't know the God of the Bible. They didn't know Jesus yet. They didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. So we have to ask the question, under what circumstances could Paul actually greenlight women teaching in this church? I can't think of one up, at least not at this point in human history. Right, so all that to say, right, it, sh it sheds some light and gives some layers to this conversation that weren't there when you just take that verse out of context. Right, and so I just want to submit to you, right, there's just a few possibilities as to why maybe Paul wrote this and, and actually said this. Right, one, as we said, uh, women just have not had the opportunity to be educated enough to be in a, a position of authority and teaching in the early church. Not yet, anyway. Uh, number two, uh, they'd be much more likely to incorporate false teaching, like from this pagan religious Artemis, and we know that false teaching was the main focus of his entire letter to Timothy. That was the issue facing this local church. So it's very likely that some of them were doing exactly this when Paul wrote it. And then thirdly, right, these women inevitably would have been immediately associated with Artemis, the goddess of infertility. Now, Aaron, how do you know that? Oh, now this is where it gets good, all right? 
We need to read the couple verses that lead up to the verse that we started with about women not being able to be in authority. And this is what we read. This is what Paul writes. He says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. All right? So Paul is saying, right, what's Paul's concern here? His concern is, is that women are dressing in a way that brings God glory and doesn't send the wrong message, but he gives us some very specific examples, right? He says women cannot have braided hair, wear gold, wear pearls, or have expensive clothing. Uh-oh, ladies. All right, how are we going to apply this one? This is why when Megan came out of the shower this morning, she had braided hair, and I said, Jezebel. Go back and take those braids out, you woman of the night. Right, no, of course, and we laugh because we read this and what we intuitively know, even if you have no religious background at all, what we know is there's no possible way that this is universal. This has to be cultural. It, I don't know of any guy on the face of the earth who sees a woman with braided hair and says, oh, I know what she wants. Right? Or she's got a gold ring, she's wearing pearls, oh, baby. Right? No, we don't do that. I've never met a woman who, who says, you know, well, I don't braid my hair. Well, why is that? Because the Bible says so, Right? We just know that intuitively that these are, this is a cultural thing going on here, right? And so we, ha- and we have to ask. When, whenever we run into a weird, a weird verse like this, is we have to ask the culture question. Is there something going on culturally that could help explain why Paul gives these few specific examples? And what we've just found out is that there were, right? And that is, in this particular time in, in Ephesus, women who wore expensive clothing with braided hair, gold, and or pearls, Right, that, that is how the priestesses dressed. Right, th- so this is how the temple priestesses of Artemis, this is how they dressed. And so what Paul is saying is women like, don't, don't dress like a prostitute, which I think is a timeless truth that we can apply you know, in all those times. Don't do that. You know? Don't dress like a temple prostitute for a pagan god. Right? But he gives us some very specific examples that we all recognize um, are cultural. But here's the thing. Here's what we often miss. Here's what I want to put on the table for us this morning, right? Is that Paul, when you read the Greek, you got to know there are not chapters and there are not verses. It's just one big body of text, right? And so you got to pay attention to when an author is on a stream of thought and not assume uh, when it's going from verse to verse or chapter to chapter that the author is switching gears. We put those in there. That's not in the original Greek. And Paul is on a roll here. He is listing things off, right? Don't do this. Don't wear that. Don't wear that. Don't wear that. Women can't do that. He's on a roll. But the way that we end up interpreting this in the church, traditionally what we've done, is like we go, braided hair, cultural, don't, you know, don't wear gold, that's cultural, don't wear pearls, that's cultural, uh, don't wear a nice dress, that's cultural, uh, women can't teach or have authority over a man, that is the universal truth, that is the word of God, and we believe in it, you know? And it's, do you get what I'm saying here? It's like, we have to ask, does it make any sense that in this moment, as Paul is listing off all these things that he makes an about-face turn from culturally now irrelevant specifics to universal truth. For me, just so you know, from, from my perspective, I can't buy that. Like, the, the, it, I don't see it in the text. You know, and there's some people who say, well, if you read the next two verses, he refers to creation, and therefore this is eternal truth, which makes no sense. His argument, he says, you know, men have been created before women, and, therefore, you know, and that's the argument. You know, men were created first, therefore they have authority over women. That argument doesn't make sense. The animals were created before us. You know, does that mean we're supposed to go for, like, personal career advice to llamas, you know, and listen to what they have to say? Or, like, you know, pray and, and seek spiritual guidance from zucchinis? 
I, I don't think so. Like the, it's just a really bad argument. It just doesn't hold up. And so we have to ask, does this make sense? And to me, given the cultural context and given the way that Paul is talking about all these things that we all recognize are culturally irrelevant now, that was a cultural time, specific time and place, that it no longer is relevant, to me, to buy that this verse is somehow a universal truth is a really hard sell. So that's just this verse. So let's do this. Let's zoom out and ask the second question, and that is, is this consistent with what the entire canon of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, teaches on the subject? Right? And, and, and honestly, we, if, if I could hang out with you for a month, we could spend a whole month just looking at the amazing women uh, in the Bible. But this morning, we don't have that time. Uh, but I do want to give you just a few examples. Right? So just beginning in the Old Testament. Beginning in the Old Testament. Uh, what about Miriam? All right, Miriam, we're told in Exodus 15, 20, that she's a prophet. All right, in Numbers 12, we're told that she is one to whom the Lord spoke. All right, so Miriam is the co-leader of Israel. She leads Israel alongside Moses and Aaron. Right, and we have to ask, well, how does that work then? Why is that? Did, did that just accidentally make itself, in, itself into the text? You know, or is there something else going on here? Right, or what about Huldah? Huldah is also a woman who's called a prophet. And in 2 Kings 22, Josiah is the king of Israel. He's kind of like a reformist king. The, the country, oh, gee, it scares me every time. The, the country is, the, the people of God are in desperate need of spiritual renewal. And so the, the leadership needed a word from God. So Josiah sends his priest to this woman prophet named Huldah who gives explicit teaching and commands from God to both the priest and the king, right? And so for those of us who, who believe the Bible, think the Bible teaches against women being in leadership, we have to ask, if God is opposed to women being in a position of leadership or teaching a man, the difficulty is why in the world would God have the king and the priest go to a woman for authoritative, authoritative instruction if that's violating his own will, right? And I'm just going to leave that question on the table. We have to wrestle with that. And I'm not sure how to resolve it. Uh, another place in the Old Testament is the book of Judges. Uh, Judges 4.4. Deborah is called uh, the prophet. We read in 4.4. Deborah, Deborah is a prophet, the wife of Lapidus. And she was, and here's what, what does it say after this? She was leading Israel at that time. And she was. Right? In the time of Judges, Jesus got to know. Judges were the ones that, that exercised uh, judicial leadership, political leadership, and spiritual leadership. And Deborah, Deborah is that. And, and it's an amazing story. Uh, and, and I'll just read this. This is what we read. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have her, their disputes decided. Incredibly wise woman, a very powerful woman. She sent for the son, the, the general of the army essentially, and said, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take with you 10,000 men. Lead them into this place. I'm going to lure Sisera and his, his army in there, and you can take them out. And this is what Barak says. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. And so Deborah says these words, very well. I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, just so you know, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And that's exactly what happens. Right, and I love this story. Barak, just so you know, his name means lightning. Right? He's supposed to be strong. And interestingly enough, uh, Deborah's name means honeybee. <laughs> And she's a fierce honeybee. We'll just say that. And, and the, one of the most important like, wrinkles in this story, I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 4 we find out that she's, 
she's married. All right, so any caricature that might come to mind, she's not a strong, independent woman who hates men and is probably a lesbian, you know what I mean? Like, whatever that character is in your mind, she's married, and she's been commissioned by God to lead the people of Israel, which also includes her husband. So she's leading her husband and the nation of Israel by God's decree. And again, we have to ask, well, what in the world is that about? And one of the interesting things that we find as we read all these Old Testament accounts about these amazing women leaders is they, they record this stuff without comment. It doesn't say, well, women had to step up in that time because all the men were a bunch of pansies and weren't spiritually mature and they didn't take initiative just like Adam, so a woman had to step up. It doesn't say that. Right? It just records it and moves on to the next one. Right? And so again, just got to let that sit there. And those are, again, these are just some Old Testament exa examples, but they're snapshots. Right? And you've got to pay attention. Where is the story going? Where is God moving this whole thing? Is it towards enslavement or freedom? Is it towards women being subservient or actually towards empowering them? Right? And, and so we, we don't even have time to talk about the women in the early local church. But where I, want, I do want to land the plane is let's just look at Jesus. Right? We're in church. I think that's a pretty good place to land the plane. Let's just look at Jesus. And, and, here's, a mo and here's the thing. The way that Jesus treated women and empowered women in this culture is as shocking as it is undeniable. A couple of notes, just so you know, on the, on the culture in which Jesus walked and taught and did ministry. Uh, rabbis generally held that women were inferior. Right? And you find a few variances of this, but generally speaking, that was the sentiment, that women were inferior to men. Uh, in fact, there is an old rabbinic saying that says this. It's better for the Torah, the book of the law, to be burned than to be taught to a woman. Right, that was, that was, you find that in a number of texts, old rabbinic saying. Uh, there was an ancient prayer uh, found in a number of different ancient texts, a Jewish prayer that says this, uh, Blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Right, several texts. And so there were Jewish men, this was a part of their early morning prayer routine. They would pray this prayer every day. Thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Uh, a devout rabbi would not even talk to a woman. In fact, there was a whole group of rabbis called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And they were called that because they, they wouldn't even, they would walk around like this, and if they heard a woman's voice or they thought there was a woman anywhere in their periphery, they would close their eyes. And they would bump into rocks and buildings and trees and fall off stuff, which is why they were called uh, the bruised and bleeding rabbis. This is the culture in which Jesus steps onto the scene. Every time that you watch Jesus and what he does and what he says and what he taught, this is the culture in which we read Jesus. In John 4.27, early in Jesus' ministry, he comes to a Samaritan woman at the well. Right, in verse 27 it says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Why is that? Because of what we just said. Rabbis didn't do that. You didn't talk to a woman. Someone wouldn't even make eye contact. And yet Jesus is engaging her in conversation, and they're talking about theology. They're talking about worship. And she ends up actually placing her faith in Jesus and becomes Jesus' ambassador to an entire Sumerian village. This was, this was something new. right? This was culturally shocking, what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus, and Jesus by the way, didn't just speak to women. Uh, he allowed women to touch him. And if you remember in, in, uh, in John um, or Luke 7, right, Jesus is with all of his bros. Right, all the guys are hanging out. They're jockeying for position. They want to be important in Jesus' eyes. They want to be like the leaders in this new thing that's happening. 
And we're told that this woman shows up, and she's, everybody knows that she's a scandalous woman, promiscuous woman, a sinner uh, in a very public way. And she comes in, falls on her feet before Jesus, pours expensive perfume all over his feet, lets down her hair, which, by the way, was illegal at that time, and begins to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. And Jesus turns to all the guys in the room and says, gentlemen, this is how it's done. Look at her faith. Right, from the moment I got here, you guys have been having a contest right, and trying to jockey for position, and she has not stopped wiping my feet with her tears since she got here. This is worship. You guys need to learn. You need to learn from her. Luke 8.1 says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of spirits and diseases. Uh, Mary called Magdalene, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And I think in 2016, we read that and just kind of skip ahead and keep reading. But you got to know, this was unprecedented. A community of peers, men and women, acting as brothers and sisters underneath a rabbi, traveling from town to town, doing ministry with him, this was something new. This was radical. This is New Testament, new creation. Uh, something is happening that is just off the charts, never been seen uh, before. And we find out that the women are bankrolling Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his disciples. And Jesus doesn't find that to be a shameful thing. He welcomes it. Right? And we find it in the canon uh, of Scripture. Right? This, is, this is something new. Right? And, and Mary and Martha. If you remember Mary and Martha, right? uh, they're Martha's home. Right? And Martha's doing all the good womanly duties. She's cooking, she's hosting, she's cleaning the place. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, which, by the way, was a Jewish way of saying she was one of his disciples. It says the same thing with Apostle Paul when it talks about the people he discipled underneath. She's sitting at his feet. Right? If you remember, Martha gets really mad because she's being a bad woman. Right? She's not doing all the things that culturally would be expected of her. And she says, Jesus, would you make her do all the womanly duties with me? And, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Martha which always makes me think of Marsha, 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 you know? And, and he says, she has chosen what is better. At a time when women could not be disciples. You know, it's like Jesus is saying, she, I, I, I appreciate you cooking and all that stuff, but you need to know something new is happening here. She is sitting at my feet as my disciple, and nobody is going to take that from her. This was revolutionary. And we find Jesus doing these kinds of things all the time. And we know that women played a crucial role in Jesus' ministry all of the way up until the end. Right? When, after Jesus is crucified, all the men scatter in fear. It's the women who are still standing by his side. And what we find is that women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. We're talking about the climactic event of our faith. In a culture where women couldn't even testify in court, Right, if 100 women watched a man commit murder, but there's no male witness, that guy gets off scot-free because women couldn't testify in court. Their word was considered no good. And God chooses a handful of women to be the witnesses to the climactic event of our faith. Right, again, friends, this is to say nothing about Pentecost, right, repeating the words of Joel, that in this day, as the kingdom of God comes, as God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven, that, oh, not just your boys will prophesy, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Right? This is to say nothing about all the important roles that women in the local church played, which they did. Human history records it to, for us. 
right? And, and so we need to like sit on this. Right? I don't know how in the world we got too far off, but something tells me we took a lot more of our cues from culture than God's word. So here's, here's what I want to do. I promise I'm going to land the plane. I'm almost there. In fact, worship band, you guys can come on up. But I want to read a piece for you, a reflection by a gal by the name of Kate Wallace. And this is some powerful stuff. And this is what I want us to, to sit on and just deal with in our own heart. And this is, this is what she writes. Jesus told a woman to spread the good news of his resurrection, but we won't let a woman preach it from the pulpit. Jesus engaged in cross-gender discipleship, but we teach that this is, this is somehow dangerous or overly tempting. Jesus depended on the financial provision of women for the welfare of his ministry, but we teach that men are to be the sole providers in Christian communities. Jesus used female examples in his teachings and spoke about women in his stories, but we teach that Christianity is supposed to have a masculine feel. A young woman carried uh, <clears throat> the body and blood of Jesus in her for nine months, but we teach that a woman can't serve communion. Jesus denied that there is hierarchy in the kingdom of God, but we teach that there is hierarchy between men and women. And she continues, and I want you guys to get this. I know that Paul wrote some things that have caused us to be overly concerned about a woman's place. But, and get this, but if we are teaching something that is inconsistent with Jesus' life, perhaps we've gotten it all wrong. Right, and I want to submit to you, even even if the only thing that we had was the life and ministry of Jesus, I think that would be enough. And yet we have so much more in this incredible book that we call the Bible. You know, and I've been really excited and encouraged to see movement on this and seeing the church begin to wake up. But if I'm really honest with, it, with you, I think we're paying the price for, for basically cutting off half the body of Christ and silencing them from using their God-given gifting and calling. And, and that, that, needs to, that needs to change. Now, I've got two little girls, and one of them is mannish. She's a strong leader. And I dream of the day when she can actually exercise her God-given giftedness in the context of Jesus' church in a way that she's been created and called to do without a man saying, hey, I'm sorry, we have different genitalia, so you're unqualified. Right? I'm sorry to be crass. Again, you can email me. You've got my email address. Right? But genitalia does not qualify you for anything, nor does it disqualify you. Right? And I think, and I'm, I need to apologize to, to Jake for this, I, I think we have a lot of catching up to do in this regard. And that there's probably some of, some of us in the room that need to do some business with God. And I, I, I have to let you know, like, I, I am so encouraged by, by what I see at Finding Life. You guys have been leading the way on this. Uh, for some time, but I also know that it's come with, like at a price at points. Like I remember, I heard a story about one gentleman who was really mad. He felt like this, the pendulum had swung too far, and there are just too many strong women leaders at Finding Life, so he left. It's like, are you kidding me? You're 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 complaining that the men aren't stepping up, so you're going to step down and go home, right? There is a price to some of this, right? But I don't think that I don't think the proper response is to silence women and to hold them back. If you have a problem with it, men, step up. Right? We need it. Right? Men and women. Right? Gals, man, if God, is, God has gifted you, and if he's called you, this church, this city, this world needs you to use it. And for us as men, 
and women, we need to really evaluate our hearts and ask, have we been getting in the way of that? You know, and as, as I've been more vocal about where I land on this issue, I've had women tell me that, you know, sometimes women are actually the worst at this because they've been conditioned to believe that a woman's place is to remain silent because Paul said this one thing one time. And they were taught a theological position that was based on a couple verses. You know, and so sometimes they have a big problem with a, a strong woman exercising her gifting. And if that's true, I think you got to ask, man, is there some heart-level stuff that, that you need to deal with? Right, and my prayer for you as a community that this would continue to be a place where we don't make distinctions based on gender. Right, we don't disqualify anybody because of what they, what's going on uh, uh, anatomically. But that we make calls based on someone who's gifting and calling. And that we would hear Paul's words in Galatians 3 that says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And now, in Jesus' church, in his coming kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let me pray for you. Lord God, as we come before you now as a community of faith, as we respond in worship, I ask that this would also be a time in which we're listening to the Spirit's leading our, our own heart and soul. And Lord, I know I'm, I'm coming off pretty strong this morning, but also I ask that, that uh, we would approach this issue with humility, because the truth is, I could be wrong. We could be wrong. Uh, this is just my best attempt at discerning your heart, your desire, your work, your kingdom, where all of this is going, what you want. Lord, let this not be something that divides Finding Life or your capital C church. Lord God, I pray uh, for the women in this room and listening in. I pray for those that have felt held back maybe their entire life because of one thing that a pastor said or a small group leader said. And Lord God, I pray that this would be the day that the shackles start to come off and that we as, as their peers, as their church, would be a part of helping them discover their God-given gift, gifting and calling and to step into that. Because I think this whole women in leadership thing, this is, a, this is a first century bondage that we need to be free from, like slavery. Because you are doing something new. It's New Testament, new kingdom, new creation. So Lord God, we, we come before you now. And we pray these things in your name as we come before you in worship. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship.